As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Uh, welcome to Uncorking a Story, where I always like to say we uncork the stories behind the stories. And I'm curious, where does your story start? Where does the story of Sherry Lapina start? Oh, well, um, I was born in Scarborough, Ontario, which is not too exciting. Um, I grew up in um, partly in North Toronto and partly in a little um, out on a farm in a, near a little town called Sterling, Ontario. Um, my family bought a farm out there. Um, so I moved out there when I was about nine years old and I grew up out there and I went to high school in Belleville. And then when I was university age, uh, I came to the University of Toronto and I've lived in Toronto ever since. Wow. So, uh, so native Canadian. Native Canadian. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rural and city. Very good. Now, are they um, are they letting people from the states into Canada yet, or is there still sort of a travel restriction because of COVID? No, starting August the 9th, Americans who are vaccinated can come into Canada without restrictions, but we can't go to the states. Really? <laughs> now, is that is that because yeah, of is so, that a rule from Canada, or is there, the states not letting you in? No, that's a that's a rule from the states. Oh, really? That's fascinating. Yeah, they're not open. Yeah, they're not opening their border to us. We were going to come down to New York City um, in August, but we're going to not come now. Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear um, that. I, uh, I actually live... Yeah, me too. I live in Connecticut, not far from New York City. Um, oh, that's a great location. I used to go out with a guy from Yale, and I used to go down and visit New Haven all oh, the time. Oh, sure. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, known yeah. for Yale, also known for pizza. Um. Yep. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, so, but uh, I know the city has been opening up um, kind of slowly but surely, and it looks like Broadway's coming back, and so I'm, I'm sorry that you can't, uh, you can't be here to experience that, but you also can't be here to experience the rise in crime that's been happening in New York City, too, so I guess uh, yeah. if there was a silver lining, maybe that's a gray lining, I don't know. 
Yeah. So when um, when did you start to think that you um, could make a living out of writing? Just kind of talk to me about how you your path into into writing and publishing. Well, I you know I wanted to write from when I was a kid, but you know obviously I didn't think it was a good career choice. So I I did a degree in political economy at U of T, and that seemed to naturally lead to law school and. I became a lawyer for a very short time and I realized I absolutely hated being a lawyer. Um, so I became an English teacher because really all I really like is to read and to write. That Those are my, my two passions. So um, then I, I didn't really start writing until I was home uh, with my kids when my first child was born. I stayed home and then when I was a stay-at-home mom I had time to um, write during during the nap so I started writing and I started off in literary fiction I didn't start in thrillers and um, I just decided one day I wanted to try writing a novel a literary novel so I sat down and I I wrote it and um, I got it published quite easily I got an agent right I've never had trouble getting agents I've been very fortunate that way so I got an agent and that book got published uh, in Canada and it was well received. It didn't sell a lot. And then I wrote another literary novel. They were both comedies. And um, that was fun. And that one did a little better. But the truth is, I've, I've always loved reading thrillers. And I've always wanted to write thrillers. And you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to write Nancy Drew books. <laughs> I just thought that was <laughs> what I wanted to do. But because I don't plot ahead, um, and I don't plan my novels, I didn't think I could write a thriller. <clears throat> Excuse me, because you know thrillers are very plot driven and they have very complicated plots, and so I thought you had to figure all of that out ahead of time in order to write one. And I've never been able to figure out a novel ahead of time. I always have to figure it out as I go. So that works great with literary fiction because you know I called my first novel a plotless wonder for about a year because I didn't know <laughs> what was going on. Um, but when it was over, it had a lovely plot and a lovely arc. And, you know, I realized afterwards it actually had a very nicely developed plot, but I just couldn't see it consciously at the time. Um, so anyway, I put off writing a thriller for a long time because I thought I couldn't do it. And then one day I finally I'd had enough and I thought, you know, it's now or never. I'm, I was in my 50s then and I thought, well, I'm going to I'm going to try writing a thriller. And I had tried to plot one out, you know, I tried with the stickies and I couldn't make anything work. I couldn't think of anything. So I just decided I'm just going to write, I'm going to try writing a thriller the same way I wrote my literary fiction, which is with no plot at all and just start with an idea and just go. So I was so sure it wouldn't work that I didn't tell anyone that I was writing it and I didn't tell my husband. I wrote it completely in, in secret, which I find very liberating. You know, I like to write in secret. Yeah. Um, because then it doesn't matter if you completely, you know, botch it up. But um, so I wrote it in six months and I, I didn't have a plot. I didn't really, all I had was this idea about a couple that leaves their baby at home and goes next door with a baby monitor. And it just started with that dinner party and it just kept developing as I wrote it. And, you know, I found that I could write thrillers in the same way I wrote my other fiction, which is just by the seat of my pants. And... I, I don't know, I guess I can plot, but I can only plot unconsciously in my like in my subconscious mind I plot, but I don't plot consciously ahead of time. I just can't do it. So anyway, I put off writing thrillers for a long time until about six years ago, and then I wrote Couple Next Door, and then it's just been thrillers ever since. 
course, you know, when I had to write the second one, I thought, oh, I don't know if I could, <laughs> if I could do that again. But, you know, I got over that second book hump. And now I just write them all the same way. I just start with an idea and I go because, you know, I can't plan. So I, I that's how I got into thrillers. So anyway, so I, I never, I had a little bit of critical success in Canada with my literary fiction. Um, but when I wrote my thriller, it was a completely different thing. I, I got a different agent who, who does thrillers because my literary agent really didn't deal in thrillers at all. Yeah. And, you know, she, I sent it to her and... And when I wrote this book, when I wrote The Couple Next Door, I thought, no, it's not bad. You know, that's, you know, I'm happy with it. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to send it out. So I sent it out to this agent that I wanted. And um, she called me back the next morning and said, oh, we have to meet. I want to sign you up. And, and I was astonished because in literary fiction, nobody ever gets back to you quickly or, you know, it's a completely different world. And so we went, we got together for coffee and she said, well, I'm going to New York next week, and I want to take your manuscript. And um, I've told this story before, but I, I find it really funny. She um, she went to New York and she took the manuscript, and then she called me one night a few days later, and I was in my kitchen making dinner, and she said, "Hi, it's Helen." Like my agent is Helen Heller. She says, "Hi, it's Helen," and I said, "Helen who?" Because I I had never had one of my my literary agent ever call me at home. And I just wasn't expecting to ever really hear from her again because, you know, they always say, oh, I'm going to sell your book in New York for a lot of money. It's going to be great. So when she called out of the blue, I just, I didn't realize it was her. I said, Helen, who? And she goes, well, I used to be your agent. But anyway, <laughs> um, she had a preempt offer. So within about, wow. I don't know, a few days, we met, you know, within a, within a few days, we met. She signed me up. She went to New York. She got a preempt. And then it sold all over the world. And... I don't know, I think it's at 35 countries or something now. And um, and then it, it just went on from there. So that's sort of my, my you know, my uh, path. I started very small, and then I wrote a thriller that went really big really quickly, and I've been doing thrillers ever since. What, it sounds like when no you were a kid... No one was more surprised than me. <laughs> when you were a kid, though, like, it sounded like you, you knew you wanted to be a writer, but you... You didn't think you could make a living doing it. I'm, I'm just curious as to w like how that sort of came into your head. Like, where, how did that thought come into your head? Why did you think at the time that you know you'd, you'd never be able to make a living doing it? So I guess I'll study economics and go to law school. You know, I don't know. I don't know if it was. Oh, so was, there's a couple of things. So when I was little, I was a massive bookworm. So books were my my go-to for everything, right? So I, I read lots of horse stories and lots of mysteries and, you know, my Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. And then I went on to Agatha Christie and, you know, I was always just a really, really big reader. And I always thought that the life of an author would be a great life. You would just sit on your own and you would make up these stories and people would read them. And it, it, I just thought it'd be so much better than having a job. And I guess I'm just not the kind of person who really wants to have a job. <laughs> you know, I prefer to do my own thing. I think a lot of writers are like that. We just we just like to do our own thing. We're creative people. We don't want to really go nine to five. And um, so I think there were two things going on. I, I I usually say you know I didn't think I could make a living, and so I went to law school. But it, it was more than that. It was yes, being a writer is not a practical career choice in terms of of that. But I also with me it was like I was very shy about writing, and I thought oh I, I could never be a writer. I was just very. Um, it was just something I thought was very audacious to say that I wanted to do, so I, I never admitted it to anybody or 
I didn't go around saying, oh, I want to be a writer, but it's not going to pay. I just never admitted I wanted to be a writer. Um, so it takes, and maybe this is more for women, I don't know, but I've heard people talk about this where you have to give yourself permission to be a writer, like, you know, it's something that you want to do, but it seems so um, pre presumptuous in a way, you know, I'm, I'm from a wasp family and you don't get above your station kind of thing. Um, <laughs> that, whole, that sort of background. So you don't don't get too big for your britches and all that, don't, you know. Oh yeah, I, I married Canadian... I married a wasp and I understand that completely. Oh, you do? Okay, great. So you, you know what I'm talking about. And it's the whole Canadian thing, which you might not know too much about. But the Canadian thing is kind of we're all very nice and you don't think too big. Like you don't. And that's a whole other story about how Canadians um, treat creative people. Like we we tend to not celebrate. Um, talent in the way that Americans do like we're we don't want to get too big for our bridges right in Canada so anyway I um you know I kept it really quiet and I I just as I said I wrote in secret for a while and um when I finally decided I wanted to write my first novel which was a, a comedic novel I finally I went to one of the writers in residence in Toronto the Toronto Reference Library so they have they bring in famous writers and they pay them to um, stay in the library and then, then people go in and show them their work and they advise them and so on. And so I I went to the, the reference library, uh, writer in reference and, um, writer in residence, sorry. And he said, you know, you have to come out of the closet. Like this is, this is really good. So I thought, okay, well I'll, I'll come out of the closet on the literary fiction, but I went right back in the closet with the thriller until I, sure. um, until I had someone tell me it was good. So, you know, so it's a couple things. It was sort of that, you know, I didn't really think I could be a writer. And also, it, was, it wasn't a very practical choice. Yeah. yeah. Do you think so there I was went to law school because I was... Hmm? I was going to say, do you think there was a little fear of vulnerability there? Just the fear of making yourself vulnerable to whatever it might be, criticism or, or even praise? Yeah, there's that too. Because when you, when you publish a book, it's out there, right? And people... You know, it's out there for everyone to see. It's not like you can do it in secret anymore. So, um, yeah, you have to worry about what people will think. Now, it's it's harder for some people when they write things that are more close to home, and they have to worry about what, you know, what their family's going to think. But I write thrillers like no one in my family thinks they're in the book, or um, so there's there's that whole thing. But you know, some of my neighbors sometimes worry that they're in my books, but really they're not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's, there are a lot of pressures on writers that make them less likely to write things like financial pressures and exposure and, you know, family thinking that, oh, you can't do that or, you know, there's a lot of things that tamp you down. So you really have to, and the other thing about it is, practically speaking, um, to be a writer, you, you work for years or decades before you have any success. So it takes a tremendous amount of discipline and, um, you know, sticking to it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I wrote for, I'd been writing for, like, people talk about The Couple Next Door being an overnight success, but I'd been writing for, like, a decade or more, or maybe 15 years before that book came out, so. Yeah, I think there's this myth of the overnight success, um, and, you know, what, what people don't realize is that, you know, the, the work and the hours and the sweat and, and all of it that goes into getting... Getting to, to write a book that is actually that good, people don't necessarily see all the the work behind it and all the attempts behind it. 
Yeah. That's very true. So for every, for every, you know, people always talk about the overnight successes, but there are years and years and years of work that goes in before you can even show anything to anybody, and before it's published. And you know, uh, you're right. It's 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 a very writing, but the arts in general, it's years and years of, of work to learn the craft, right? So um, you don't see too many um, really young people. Well, like you occasionally will see a young person burst on the scene. Um, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. You know, usually it, it's everyone's worked. For me, it's not too dissimilar to, to stand-up comedy. So if you see, you know, name, you know, a big stand-up comic now, like Sebastian Maniscalco or, or Kevin Hart or something, you know, you see them now and they're playing arenas and they're selling out theaters. But what most people don't realize is it took them 20 years of working in small comedy clubs and, you know, one night engagements to, to get to the point, you know, 20 years later where they can sell out a theater or something. And, and with writers, you know, it's, I think it's, it's similar, you know, the people don't necessarily see all of the, all of the work that goes, goes into it because you, you know, a, a, a bestseller just doesn't come out of thin air. You know, it comes from a lot of That's uh, right. trial and error almost. Well, you know, yeah. I'm really curious about your writing process because, you know, a lot of a lot of people tell me, especially when when writing, you know, mysteries and thrillers that you kind of have to have an outline. You have to have, you know, you may not know how the story ends, but you have to know what the beats are. And to execute a, a, a really tight and, and jaw dropping plot twist, you kind of have to know ahead of time. It sounds like you're discovering it much like a reader will discover it. I'd, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I wish I could explain how it happens, but, you know, I know it sounds weird, but I'm not the only one. There are other writers who don't don't plot at all. They, they, they figure it out as they go. Um, so, basically, I'm, I'm writing along, and then, you know, the characters kind of take over and then something will happen and that will lead to some other idea and that will lead to some other idea and the twists just kind of come organically. Like, I don't think them through. Like, I, I don't say it would be really good if at the three-quarter point there was a twist. Um, <laughs> I don't know what that is. Um, so, like, some of my twists have completely floored me. Um, and I, I don't want to talk... So this is always the hardest thing about speaking about thrillers and she can't talk about anything or sure. it's a spoiler and so my books but the way they take off is like pretty much from the get-go they start off being twisty and you don't know who to trust so if I give away something you know even early in the book it's, it's, it's something but um, you know when I was writing my first book well I guess I can give this much away when I was writing a couple next door when very early on in the book when it turned out the husband might have had something to do with it I was like Oh, <laughs> you know, like I, 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 there was a point in the book, I can't even remember what it was because it was a long time ago and I've written so many books since then. But um, I remember thinking, oh my God, <laughs> and loving it. And, and that was the first time I was surprised by a twist. And, um, and that still happens to me when I write a book. Somebody will say something, it will lead to something else. And I'll go, oh, what if, you know? Um, so that's, I, I can't explain it except that I think for artists, <clears throat> or for anyone who's working on a problem, I think you're, you know, you, you think about it consciously, but I also think your, your subconscious mind is thinking about it and, and working it through all the time, right? And so, you know, 
it's all there and it comes out onto the page and just some people are better able to bring it out into their unconscious mind so that they can see ahead of time what's going to happen and some of us just go more in the flow yeah. I, I don't know how to describe it it's kind of like a you know anyone who's creative they have their own process and so there are people you know like me who say oh yeah I just write and it just it just goes along and then the, everything takes over and you just get in the zone and, it, and it's fabulous and, and that's just the way I do it now having said that when I have my really messy first draft I have like I have a story and I have characters and I have some twists and everything and then oh it needs a ton of work you know it's not like I can write that you know instinctive first draft and I've got a finished book I have like a beginning a middle and an end and there's some twists and I've got some good characters but I usually have to do a lot of work on you know the plot so for instance in some books I'll actually change the ending and you know in another book I remember I put in a whole new subplot through the whole thing um, like the basic story was there but I added a whole um, layer of subplot with some other characters so yeah. you know when it's all done and finished I I have to have that to work with <coughs> and then I can go back and I can make it stronger and I can tighten it and I can you know take out some threads that weren't working or I can weave in some more threads that are more interesting or whatever but the main story I get down and just like a every day I write every day so it's, it's there's a lot of momentum for me and then um, then when I, I'm sorry I don't know what this, these I'm gonna just close my email I thought I had to have it open to have your link but I, I'm still here okay sorry it all looks um, fine to me <clears throat> what's that I said it all looks fine to me okay um so that's just that's how I do it I mean I, I enjoy writing the first draft and then I kind of I find the editing process really difficult because that's when you have to pick the whole thing apart and see what's working well and what isn't working well and and so on but um you know if I could plan I I, I would because I think it would make things easier um but I still I mean on to um I'll be starting my seventh book soon and I still haven't done one yet that was different in in process than than all of the first six so I'm probably not going to be able to do that <laughs> well it sounds like the process you use is is working just fine for you so it, it's it's working but it would be easier for the publishers and the editors and me probably if if I could see the whole thing in one big uh, perfect uh, outline first and then just yeah. write but I don't know if I would be motivated that way if I knew what was going to happen then I wouldn't be writing it probably but I want to find out what's going to happen so I every day I leave my my characters on some sort of you know they're in some sort of tense situation and I want to I want to know where that's gonna go you know like when I go back and I read it and I go oh that's that's really interesting that little mini twist there that you know it's not all twists it's it's reveals really that's that's what makes the that's what makes a thriller or a psychological suspense book really really work is the timing of the reveals and what the yeah. reveals are and so on so um, I find reveals all the time like there's one in my new book that is so cool that I can't talk about that totally surprised me um, but yeah I can't talk about it sadly well I think what you can talk about is uh, being a lawyer so I'm curious because you're the third person uh, third author I've talked to in, in the past month or so whose oh. you know prior career was uh, in the legal profession 
And um, oh, who are the other ones? Because I I know lots. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> now you're going to put me on the spot. Um, Noel Obiro, um, who uh -huh. just wrote a book. Um, uh, just got a book story. Um, uh, book story, book published. Now I've got a. I got I got to go back into my files. Um, and there was a new a, a, a woman out of the UK who wrote a book called The End of Men, which is a um, ah. which is a uh, I mean not not to sell her book, um, <laughs> but it was a very interesting premise where a virus takes over and uh, yeah more <laughs> and and only kills men. Um, her oh. name was. That was Christina Sweeney Baird. Um, oh. Was uh, my other I just, I, no, Yeah. I know lots, lots of writers who used to be lawyers. Um, uh, there's one I interviewed recently, Caitlin Ware in Maine. She used to be a lawyer. Steve Cavanaugh used to be a lawyer. You know, there's lots and lots of us. What do you think is is the the overlap there in terms of? Um, leaving the legal profession or, or just having uh, that that's kind of spark inside you to to write um what's what's the glue that kind of holds those two things together um you know i, I don't know I, I i also know lawyers who would really love to write a thriller because they want to get out of the profession so badly um i think that's part of it that's part of the motivation is some people want to get out of the profession but that's not true of everyone some people really like being a lawyer and they continue to be lawyers and write at the same time. Like even our, one of our Supreme Court justices just wrote a thriller. She retired from the bench, not Supreme Court, sorry. She's, I think she's one of the Ontario Supreme Court ju justices and she wrote a thriller. And um, I have a friend who practices law in Toronto, Robert Rotenberg, he writes thrillers and he still practices. So there's, there's lots of us around. Um, I think lawyers tend to be analytical and um, they tend to be good writers, you know, just maybe not a fiction, but they're good writers and they're used to discipline and sitting down and um, I don't know, they're curious people too. So yeah. um, that helps. Yeah. But yeah, there does seem to be a link. What, um, you know, and let's, well, let's talk about your new book, Not a Happy Family. Uh, okay. I'm curious because this is uh, certainly kind of focusing on um, what maybe uh, at best could be described as a um, uh, dysfunctional family. How did um, mm -hmm. how did this idea come to you? I mean, was was this inspired by anything in particular, or um, yeah, I'd love to know the genesis of this one. Um, so yeah, I can tell you. But this is called it's called not a happy family, and. Um, this one, you know, I've been writing a lot of domestic suspense. So uh, a lot of my books are about, you know, couples, man and wife who, you know, they have secrets, something happens. Um, I wanted to do one that was broader in, in terms of the characters. So I wanted to look at, um, I don't know why, but I wanted to look at adult siblings and how they relate to each other, which is, you know, very different from the man and wife situation. So um, I wanted to have adult siblings and I wanted to have a dysfunctional relationship between the parents of the kids and also the kids. And basically what happened was that the parents were, you know, very dysfunctional. Um, the father was probably a psychopath. He was a very, very successful businessman, made millions. And I don't know if, you, you know, you read how they think a lot of very successful businessmen are actually psychopaths. Um, they're not murderous psychopaths, but they're, they have a lot of psychopathic traits. 
Um, so I created this very, very wealthy entrepreneur, um, Fred Merton, who is a psychopath. And he, um, he's pretty horrible to his family. And he's married to a woman who's very um, afraid of her, like not very assertive and just very, not very interested in her kids. So there's a bad relationship between the parents and the kids and the parents play favorites on the kids. So the kids also have a very um, interesting relationship because they, um, they compete with one another but they also are, have this bond because they have, they've had a bad growing up experience. So um, what happens is that the parents are murdered one night <coughs> and it's a very violent, ugly murder. And of course the, the three kids become the main suspects because they're all gonna inherit millions and millions of dollars. So then the, the story is which among these kids possibly, or it could, could be a couple of other people, but you know, who among these kids might have been capable of, of that kind of a violent murder. So which of the kids is the psychopath? Um, that's sort of the, the, the question. And it, it might not even be that it's one of the kids. There are some other suspects in there. Um, so it's, it's a dysfunctional family, like exponentially. <laughs> it's, it's much more than just a dysfunctional family. It's a family of psychopaths. And I, I like to think of um, psychopathy as being, you know, they're thinking now it might be on a spectrum. So you have your you're somewhat psychopathic people, and then you're really psychopathic people. So this family all has, <coughs> excuse me, they all have, um, you're somewhere on that spectrum, but which one of them is, has gone over the top um, to commit murder. Um, so I had a lot of fun writing that one because I, I love writing psychopaths. So I'm sure, I'm sure it's, it's fun because it's fun to discover, you know, discover new aspects of, of each of these characters' personalities, but how, how do you make it so real? I mean, you know, do you do you interview psychopaths? Do you do research on psychopaths? Like, how what's what's the process there to actually to, to make it so real and, and so colorful? You know what? Um, I wish I could interview psychopaths. I've never actually done that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you, you could, but you know, I, you never know. Uh, well, I okay. So I do. I have met a couple of people that I'm pretty sure are psychopaths. Um, and that's interesting, and I'm not going to say who they are. Um, but I do a lot of research and a lot of reading because I love reading about psychopaths. So you've probably heard of the, the psychopath test, the John Ronson book, where it's got the test in it <laughs> to mm -hmm. see if you're a psychopath. Um, and and there's, all, there's all sorts of, um, there's a very interesting documentary, um, I forget what it's called now, but it came out a few years ago about how it likens corporations to psychopaths, how corporations have certain psychopathic traits, like psychopathic individuals. It's fascinating stuff. So um, I do a lot of reading about, um, you know, psych psychology books about what psychopaths are like and sociopaths and all that stuff. But also I read true crime and um, I, I just, I love to read that stuff. So I think that informs my, and I'm very curious about human nature. I wish, say, looking back now, I wish I'd done a degree in psychology. I don't know why I did political science, but or economics, but psychology is where my interests lie. Um, so, I yeah, I basically research um, through reading, you know, yeah. and observing people. Reading and observing. But yeah, and I've then, never. I've, yeah, go ahead. Um, I've never had the. Uh, I I don't have anyone who's a like a psychiatrist with a good you know, link to a 
you know, a study where I can go in and meet these people. <laughs> just too bad. Maybe, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, probably is a good thing. I, I, you know, I that was my career path. I was going to become a clinical psychologist, and I. Um, oh. I uh, I did not. Um, I wound up. Uh, when, when I left undergraduate, I, I put off my doctorate for a year, and I was going uh, to, to just try my hat in advertising, and, and uh, I actually, as funny as it sounds, fell in love with, <laughs> fell in love with that. And, and then I, uh, I started um, attending focus groups as a, as a client, and I realized that what the moderator was doing was like group therapy, but he was getting paid a lot more, and he didn't have to listen to people complain all the time so I um, or talk about their you know talk about some some traumas and uh, yeah I, I was studying child abuse and trauma and uh, and um, and then I realized that that would be a very hard thing to to kind of live with just kind of um, you know I'm such an empath that it was uh, it would probably would have been a very difficult career had I had I pursued it and um, yeah. wound up uh, going into marketing before I started um, before I started writing, but uh, you, um, you know, you, you seem to be very well versed in in police procedures. I'm curious: is, is is was your education there also just reading true crime and and sort of researching like you researched um, psychopaths, or or something different there? Well, I'm really really glad to hear you say that because I always think that's the weakness in my books is the police procedure stuff. Um, I love reading police procedure. I don't really love writing it because it is very um, research heavy. And part of the reason is that I'm a Canadian and I live in Ontario and I set my books in the States. And in the US, you guys have you know, quite a different system. So I have to do a lot of um, you know, research and asking questions to see how things are different. Like the American system is really very different. You have your sheriffs and you have your, your police and um, it's it's tricky. I mean, it's tricky to get that procedure right. But you know what I do have, which I'm very lucky to have, is I have some forensics specialists that, that I rely on. So I have one in Canada and I have one in Britain. And if I have questions, then I run them by them. And it's a good thing I have them because you know the readers pick up the forensic um, mistakes. So I'm trying to think of what I use them for in this book, but. I, I can't remember, but I mean, I always have um, questions about forensics that I need to make sure they're correct or I'm going to look like an idiot. So I have these two people that I run questions by. And one of them I found, she found me, the British one, um, wrote to me and said, I noticed a forensic uh, mistake in one of your novels and I wonder if, if you would mind, you know, consulting with me on your next one so you don't make a mistake. <laughs> so I thought, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, anyway, um, it's very handy to have people like that. I don't actually have a friend in New York who's a detective. I wish I did, but I don't. So it's a combination of, you know, I've read a lot and I talk to people and I read to, you know, I watch true crime on TV and I read it and, you know, it all comes together. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I'm certainly not like a, um, some writers who do police procedurals where the procedure is so bang on, you know, they're you know, they know exactly how an incident room is set up and everything. And, and, you know, I don't have that kind of detail in my books because I don't really know it. And, yeah. and to me also, the detectives, although, you know, I get in their points of view, my books are always more about the characters to whom the story is happening. The detectives, 
they're almost um, what's they're not really peripheral, but in a way they're peripheral. They're, they're there to put pressure on the main characters who are, you know, falling apart under the police scrutiny and the events of their lives. So I'm always more interested in the typical everyday person, the person like you and me, who maybe their marriage is falling apart, maybe their parents just got murdered, maybe they think their sibling is a murderer, you know, and then the police come along and ask them all sorts of questions and imply all sorts of things and, and put pressure on and then they're like they're really so to me it's really the stories are more about the people than the cops yeah yeah, yeah. well i have a a neighbor across the street from me who is a detective um oh lovely and well he is but you know he's a detective in greenwich connecticut so you know there's really not a lot of uh serious crime there's a lot of white collar crime um but uh yeah. But he, you know, he will even say because he does some forensic stuff that you know anything you watch on TV is just so it's fantasy, right? Um, you know, it's like things just don't happen that fast. DNA doesn't come back that quickly. Um, you know, we don't really do this thing with all these black lights. But you know, it's interesting. TV viewers, I think, are much more forgiving of that than readers because readers, it seems, you know. They, they, you know, because I, I know I've been called out on, on some, you know, psychology principles that that somebody, you know, wound up sending me uh, something through Twitter saying, you know, um, psychosis or uh, you know, the sociopathic disorder that you're describing doesn't really manifest itself in that way. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like I, this is pick up on one small thing and all of a sudden you start getting emails about it. So that's I think that's a difference between readers and um and, you know, TV viewers, you know, TV viewers, they, they, they're looking for their 43 minutes of entertainment, you know, plus yeah. commercials. I, and uh, I completely know. agree with you. Like, I'll be watching a show with my husband. And I'll say, you could never do that in a book because it was there on the page. People would look at that and they would have time to look at it. And where TV, they just cut away to something else. Right. And I go, you could right. never get away with that in a novel. You just you just yeah. couldn't. It just would never. So what I do with forensics, I mean you always have to sort of say, oh, well, we'll run it through extra quickly, you know, because, you know, we know it doesn't happen that fast. Or what you can do is, is um, you know, the, you can just have, for instance, I had a problem once with gun residue. Um, someone would have had gun residue in their hands or whatever. But I, and I, that was a problem for my plot, and I can't even remember which book it was. But I found out that in New York, they've stopped testing for that because it's too expensive and it, it's not very reliable, so they just don't bother. So I thought, okay, good. I don't even have to worry about that because I'll just have a, have a line saying, oh, we don't test for that anymore. We can't afford it. We don't have time. We don't have the resources. So um, I can use that in my book, so we just don't have the resources. Otherwise, yeah. you know, if, if I had a situation where, where I, somebody would obviously be caught, I could just say, well, we don't have the resources for that. And I, I find often, which is really interesting is, and I can't do this in my books because I don't want people to think my cops are bumbling idiots, but there are so many legal cases, murder cases, where the cops have done a fairly crummy job at securing the scene. Like I can think of, there's the Dennis Olin case in Canada where the guy may have murdered his dad. There's, um, there's the Sherman case in Toronto where there was a couple murdered and they didn't secure the scene properly. And you know, I probably, maybe should edit that out. I don't want to get into trouble. Um, <laughs> Maybe well, there, were, there was the O.J. Simpson case in New York, in uh, in Los Angeles. There was that where they yes. point to you know some some bumbling there. Yeah. So you know, as a as an author, 
if you don't, you know, if you don't mind making your detectives look bad. But what I fall back on is simply the um, we don't have resources, you know, for that yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, like I say, because I'm not so comfortable with police procedure, I, I like to focus on the other characters. That's where my interest lies anyway. You know, yeah, it's almost how, how the involvement of the police, you know, puts pressure or changes the characters or, or thrusts certain things into into motion. Yeah. Well, uh, Not a Happy Family is your sixth thriller. When uh, when will people be able to uh, pick this up, Sherry? Well, it's out in the United States on July 27th, so that's next week. And it's everywhere. I mean, Barnes & Noble and all your independent stores and um, probably your grocery stores, I'm not sure. But, I mean, it's <laughs> it'll be available everywhere in hardcover. Um, and it will be... It's, it's coming out in the UK on the August the 5th, but North America, Canada, and US is July 27th. Very good. Well, I wish you all the best with uh, Not a Happy Family. And uh, what I always like to tell my listeners is, uh, you know, while it is available everywhere, and you can, of course, I'm sure get it at Amazon and Barnes and Noble, our, our small businesses, uh, and I'm sure just like yours in, uh, in Canada, have uh, been through a rough patch as of late. Um, yeah. Small independent bookstores were struggling before the pandemic, so we always encourage people to uh, go to their independent bookstore and pick it up. Uh, or if they have to buy it mm -hmm. online, bookshop.org is a great resource because they do donate a, a portion of their proceeds to uh, small local independent bookstores. So, um, mm -hmm. Sherry Lapita, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. This was fun. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.